0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Immunotherapy as a Treatment Cornerstone for Advanced Endometrial Cancer Personalizing Patient Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post test at peerview.com forward slash YTW 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good afternoon, almost afternoon, everybody. And uh, we're in Tampa in, in person and you are here instead of at the pool. So thank you. We're gonna really look at, and I I, I like this word augment our knowledge because we've all seen this data. We're gonna have uh, some discussion with regards to how that may change in the future. And then also provide some guidance in how we're gonna continue to integrate this. We continue to learn about immune therapy and some of the uh, side effects uh, in this amazing next the generation of treatments, and really looking to equip uh, you with the skills to take care of these patients in this rapidly changing field. I am so honored to be joined on the stage by two of my very uh, closest friends and probably two of the smartest pe- not probably the two smartest people I know or two of the smartest people I know. Uh, Anna Oaken.:
1: Thank you and for having Bhavna me.
0: Bob Pathuri. Bhavna is going to start us off and uh, take it away Bhavna.
2: Thank you Dave. I'm really excited to be talking with you all today about how we can incorporate this changing landscape of molecular testing. Um, so just a little bit of background about endometrial cancer. I know. Um, this audience is well aware um, that endometrial cancer is the most common gy- gynecologic malignancy in the United States um, and consists of about 66,000 new cases um, and accounts for 12,500 deaths, the median age is 63, and the relative survival, five-year survival is quite good at 81%, but when you look over to the right here, you can see that the majority of these um, are localized, two-thirds, and have excellent five-year survival rates of 95%. However, when you have stage four disease, which represents about 9%, that survival drops to about 19%. So um, we are seeing um, that the incidence and mortality of endometrial cancer is rising. Um, And we are seeing, if you see here, among all races, the incidence of ovarian cancer mortality is decreasing, but that of endometrial is rising. And that is mostly attributable to the rising incidence in the non-Hispanic black population. Um, And you can see here how that has increased. Um, and among uh, black patients with endometrial cancer, their mortality is now double that of white patients. And so these racial disparities are not just explained by you know, the higher histologic subtypes, which is one explanation, or higher stage at diagnosis, but also has to do with um, the social determinants of health. So, it's really important that we think about this and address this because these are the patients that need um, new therapeutic options. And the way to get that is to really make an effort to improve diversity in our clinical trial enrollment. So the way we now think about endometrial cancer has shifted. So it's no longer, you know, the um, type 1 and the type 2s. We now use molecular classification, and this was first described with the TCGA, and there were four molecular subtypes that um, have been described, the poly or the ultramutated, the which have 100 to 500 mutations per megabase, the MSI high that are 10 to 20, the copy number low that are two to three, those are usually the endometrioid, the well differentiated tumors, and then the copy number high which um, are the high grade and usually show P53 abnormalities. So um, again, this is just to um, show you that the poly or the ultra mutated, um, the hallmark is having mutations in the exonuclease domain of the poly, and um, this is important and relevant in DNA repair. MSI high tumors um, have uh, have. Um, Insertions or deletions um, in in the genes that um, usually MLH1, MSH2, MSH6, and PMS2 that are involved in um, DNA repair, um, and you know this is the um, TCGA classification as I showed you earlier. The prognostic um, significance of these subgroups was noted with the TCGA. You can see here the poly mutant um, had the um, best progression-free survival, p53 abnormal had the worst, while copy number low and um, DMMR had intermediate prognosis. And this was confirmed in a retrospective way in PORTEC2, again you see very similar findings. and then confirmed in the TransPortec initiative um, in a prospective fashion in Portec 3. Again, both recurrence free survival and overall survival mimic those same patterns. So, um, these are the NCCN guidelines from January of 2023. So, you know, how should we be testing our endometrial cancer patients today? So um, you know, our European colleagues are actually ahead of us in this, and um, and I'm going to let um, Anna speak more about this. But um, they are routinely doing NGS, and the NCCN guidelines um, actually um, suggests that, if feasible, um, this should be um, done in all endometrial cancer patients. However, when there are limitations. Um, surrogates can also be used. And in this um, schema, you can see that you can do just poly sequencing. And if there is no poly hotspot, then you can check for mismatch repair IHC. Um, And if their MSI ‑‑ if the expression is lost, they're MSI high. And you, otherwise, you'd do P53 immunohistochemistry, and then if they are normal or wild-type, they would be in the copy number low bucket, um, and if it was aberrant, um, they would be in the copy number high. So, um, you know, two ways of really looking at this. Um, th- this is kind of a surrogate classification um, that can also be utilized to um, uh, do the molecular subgrouping. Um, the... Um, I think it's really important to remember that endometrial cancer has the highest incidence of um, mismatch repair deficiency, um, 25 to 30%, and that surpasses that of um, colon and stomach adenocarcinoma, which you see here. Um, this is just differentiating the two tests. You know, m- mismatch repair um, protein is the IHC test, and it looks at the four um, proteins that I talked about, MLH1, PMS2, MSH6, and, um, and MSH2. Um, and then the MSI testing, you know, is essentially the phenotypic evidence of loss of DMMR. Um, and um, and this... Um, it can be done by the standard five microsatellite markers, or it can be done through NGS. Um, and, you know, I think these terms are important. Um, DMMR MSI refers to mismatch repair deficiency. PMMR MSS refers to patients with mismatch repair proficiency. So universal, you know, I think it's important to recognize that at minimum, um, we think that mismatch repair IHC is important. Um, And this is because it provides an opportunity to determine which patient should then get um, referred for genetic testing um, to rule out Lynch syndrome. It also informs um, treatment decisions in the recurrent setting, and it's going to generate really valuable information, especially as we hear about um, immunotherapies um, potentially moving into the frontline setting. Obviously, with this changing landscape, it is really important that you have, you know, some very um, open um, discussions with your pathologists and collaborate with them. And we recently had to do this at our institution, um, and um, we have now, um, you know, come to um, the idea that we are going to be doing NGS testing on all our endometrial cancer patients at the time of diagnosis. Um, So in order to do this, you really have to work with your pathologist, make sure that they know um, that they will be doing this, make sure that there's adequate specimen, um, and and really um, communicate and work together um, in in making these changes. Um, Just really a little bit of background um, about um, immune immune checkpoint inhibitors. So they work by blocking the T-cell inhibitory signal, and essentially they activate T-cells. And this landscape is um, rapidly expanding, and um, you're going to hear more of this data in a little bit. Um, And Um, The predictive biomarkers, especially in the recurrent setting, are really important um, as we um, think about utilizing these therapies. Um, So, you know, these are the, um, again, the January 2023 um, uh, NCCN standard of care. The preferred um, regimen systemic therapy for primary adjuvant is carboplatin paclitaxel um, or carboplatin paclitaxel with trastuzumab in stage 3 or 4 HER2. To, um, uterine serous cancers, so we also test for her too. Um, for this reason, um, the um, and then in the recurrent setting, um, we. We go to biomarker-directed therapy with either lenvatinib, pembrolizumab, if they are microsatellite-stable, or um, pembrolizumab or um, dostarlimab are the two that are FDA-approved for the deficient um, mismatch repair tumors. And so... um, Again, this is, you know, at minimum, MSI DMMR testing um, is, is, is important because it really helps us in terms of the therapeutic choices we make in the recurrence setting. So uh, this is just to kind of reiterate what I just um, told you.
0: Okay. So, so in my excitement to tell everybody what great friends you were, I didn't even say your title or anything. So, Bob, I, I apologize. So uh, Dr. Pathuri is uh, a <laughs> full professor at the N- NYU <laughs> where she leads the uh, clinical trials office. And uh, within uh, GOG Partners, uh, she also uh, leads our uh, DEI uh, initiative. So, Bob, thank you, and I'm sorry for, for not recognizing your wonderful accomplishments. But my iPad's blowing up. Not (laughs) butt. Now my iPad is blowing up, okay? So tell me what you're doing again at NYU. You went through that quickly. But then, okay, we have a lot of patients, a lot of people here in the audience that serve uh, uh, low-resourced patients and groups. Even at large institutions, there's patients with low resource, we worry about the financial toxicity, we worry about this. So tell me about what you're doing at NYU, but tell the the audience what else, and then I want to hear about the European experience.
2: Yeah, so, um, you know, what we have decided to do is NGS testing on all our endometrial cancers um, up front. So, and in addition, we also do HER2 testing, IHC, um, and, you know, I think we... you. And a surrogate for doing NGS is actually using immunohistochemistry. So you can do P53, and those would be... If they're P53 positive, they would be in the copy number high subgroup. Um, and if, um, if if it's... Um, a normal or wild type then they would go into the copy number low which are your more endometrioid type and you know at minimum i said everyone should have mismatch repair IHC so you know that's kind of the you know if you are in a, res- in a resource limited setting mismatch repair IHC p53 IHC i think um, you know uh, is is the minimum that should be done today
0: Right, I want to come back to that and and tell me what you guys are doing in Europe because you're you you, you are you are so far ahead of us with regards to <laughs> early stage disease. We try. We
1: try to be. I, I, I hate to admit that. Joe. I
0: just I admitted it
1: on stage, but yes. So uh, I mean, thank you for the questions. So in Europe, we have realized the importance of molecular classification to treat our patient with endometrial cancer. So we have recently published our ESMO guideline in endometrial cancer, and we strongly recommend that all patients diagnosed with endometrial cancer must have a molecular classification. At least, as mentioned, based on mismatch repair status, p53 ER and PR status. Ideally, ideally, all patients should also have polymutation status because we know that the polymutation status change the classification of this patient, but I think this is another level, but at least mismatch repair status, P53, and hormonal receptor status should be mandatory for all patients with endometrial cancer. All right, so
0: we have what's, what what our minimum is.
1: A minimum. Now, now
0: getting NGS, poly. You, you do spot mutations for the yeah. POLI, uh, which is great, and, and that would be potentially an option, but... There's no way that I'm going to be able to order NGS on all of my patients in early stage endometrial cancer. Bob, now, I mean, what should, we be, what should we be doing in that scenario? Should we be taking just those with grade 3 tumors that it may change us or push us in one direction on treatment and, uh, about systemic therapy versus local therapy? What, what, I mean, should we be using some other potential triage system? I know there's not data to say that, but we have to be practical here.
2: Right. No, absolutely. So, I think in those resource, you know, limited settings, you know, thinking about whether it's going to impact adjuvant therapy. Um, And if, you know, if this, you know, the higher grade tumors, the, you know, deeper invasive tumors where you may be giving um, therapy may be the ones that you would do the hotspot pulley testing on. Because, you know, the ESMO, the ESGO-SUR <laughs> <the> ESGO <laughs> ESGO ESGO <laughs> guidelines um,
1: actually allow you to de-escalate therapy in Absolutely. those patients. Absolutely. I mean, if I may, Please. you know, in our ESMO guideline, we recommend to try to have polymutation, hotspot mutation, at least in a stage 1 or 2, because we know that those patients on a stage 1 or 2, if the tumor harbor a polymutation, we can de-escalate therapy, and then they can't avoid receiving any adjuvant therapy. In the stage 3 and 4, there's a lot of controversy because there are no reliable data about the skipping a adjuvant therapy, but in stage 1 or 2, grade 3, it's highly recommended have hotspot spot mutation. And with
0: advanced stage, we don't have enough data yet to de-escalate. Exactly. But in the early stage where you have a decision, chemotherapy, vaginal cuff breaky, whole pelvic radiation, all the above a poly mutation may significantly impact your recommendations, all within NCCN guidelines.
2: Absolutely. Right. And I just want to make one one other point is, you know, the the FIGO staging is going to soon change, and it's based on molecular staging. So um, it's going to be even more important that we start incorporating these now. (laughs) Well, this
0: is a great discussion, and we really could do all all day on local regionals, but I, I need to move on. Uh, our next speaker is uh, uh, Professor Anna Oaken, joining us all the way from Barcelona, Spain. She leads the ENGOT uh, for Spain. And uh, it, we met, gosh, it was at SGO in Miami, I believe, and, and have been friends and collaborators every, uh, ever since. So Anna, let's hear about the, uh, the, the, the advanced mastectomy disease.
1: Thank you, Dave, for the kind introduction. Thank you all for being here with us today. So uh Vana has already very nicely explained the rationale for using immunotherapy in endometrial cancer. So the question is, where do we stand right now with checkpoint inhibitor in advance of recurring endometrial cancer? You are aware that there are several agents that are under clinical development. However, in interest of time, now we are going to review only those agents that have already been approved by regulatory agencies, namely pembrolizumab and dostarlimab and they have incorporated in the phase three trial that we will see the result this Monday, and Durvalumab. We have data from the phase two trial with Durvalumab, and Durvalumab is also incorporated in one of the phase three trial in first line that we will see in the upcoming month. what we know about pembrolizumab, you know that following the early signal efficacy activity of pembrolizumab, you know the Keynote 158 is a kind of confirmatory trial. In this phase two trial, you know, we enroll different kind of solid tumor in different cohort, but for sure today we are focusing the endometrial cancer cohort. In this cohort, we enroll patients with recurrent or advanced endometrial cancer all patients must have progressed at least one prior line based on platinum therapy, and all patients must have measurable disease. Patients were eligible if their tumor harbor MSI high or the MMR characteristics. So all the patients receive pembrolizumab, flat dose, 200 milligrams every three weeks, for 35 cycle cycle sorry progression of the disease or unacceptable toxicity primary endpoint very important to understand the activity of any single checkpoint inhibitor in endometrial cancer primary endpoint overall response rate paresi, secondary endpoint duration of response and pfs so As you can see in the slide, you know, the data provided by Pembrolizumab monotherapy are really compelling. The overall response rate was 50%. Complete response, 16%, partial response, 34%. But please, always when you look at the efficacy data from any kind of checkpoint inhibitor, look at the duration of response. You know, the duration of response reflects the magnitude of benefit that we can obtain from using checkpoint inhibitor. And here, as you can see, you know, the estimated duration of response and four year was 66%, an amazing, durable response. Moving forward, you know we have the GARNET trial. As you are aware, GARNET trial is the trial that led the of approval in both Europe and FDA in the U.S. in those patients who have advanced or recurring endometrial cancer harboring a dMMR mismatch repair deficiency MSI-high tumor. What do you know about the Garnet trial? Garnet trial is a phase one b trial that you know we started. You know trying to identify the recommended phase two dose, and later on we have different expansion cohort. Today we are reviewing the expansion cohort for endometrial cancer, focus on the. DMR MSI high. So we enroll patients who have received at least one previous line of platinum therapy either for advanced recurrent disease or for metastatic disease and a maximum of two prior lines of therapy. Importantly, we determine the DMMR status locally by immunohistochemistry. And all patients receive Dostarlimab in the recommended phase 2 dose. 500 mg every three weeks for four cycles, followed by 1,000 milligram every six weeks until progression or prohibited toxicity. Once again, primary endpoint, overall response rate and duration of response. As you can see here, you know the compelling activity of dostarlimab in this population. And in addition, let me tell you something. The GARNET trial is the trial that has the largest number of patients with DMMR treated with a checkpoint inhibitor. Overall response rate, 45.5%, complete response, 16%, partial response, 29%. And once again, look at the duration of response. The median duration of response has not yet been reached for those patients who have obtained a response to the Indeed, when we look at the probability of remaining in response at two years, was 83.7%. So, and then the Durvalumab study, the Faidra study. This is a study that enroll patients in two different cohorts. It's not a randomization of, of the patient in the two cohorts. Those patients who had a DMMR tumor, uh, they were put in one cohort, and those patients with PMMR, they were in the other cohort. All patients receive Durvalumab, you know, every four weeks. Once again, primary endpoint, objective to more response by, by resist. So what we learned from the trial is something that we have learned from another previous one. The overall response rate in the PMMR population is quite poor, only 3%. However, in the DMMR, once again, we saw a compelling activity with 47% of responses. So, I mean, we have seen that there is no doubt that the checkpoint inhibitor works very well in the DMMR, MSI population, but we wanted to improve even more the activity. So we have developed some combination that may have a kind of synergistic effect. The most developed combination are with anti-angiogenic agent with par-inhibitor and with chemotherapy. Chemotherapy, you know, you will see on Monday. I invite all of you to attend the session. So one of the most developed combinations so far is with anti-angiogenic agents. You know that initially we learned the activity of lenvatinib plus pembrolizumab from the phase 2 trial keynote 146. And the results of this study led to accelerated approval by FDA and Australian um, regulatory Agency, and in light of these results, the phase three was launched. And the phase three, the keynote 775, I know that you know very well, but I will, you know, review the top data. This is a phase three trial that enrolls patients who have received prior platinum therapy. First thing that you keep in mind, all patients have previously received platinum therapy. And then the patients were stratified according to the mismatch repair status, mismatch repair deficiency and mismatch repair proficiency. Among those patients with mismatch repair proficiency tumor, then we have another stratification factor as region, ECOG, a previous history of pelvic radiation. Then patients were randomized in a one-to-one fashion to experimental arm, namely plus pembrolizumab, or a standard arm, that is physician-choice chemotherapy, either doxorubicin or paclitaxel. Very important primary endpoint. In this case, we have a co-primary endpoint PFS and overall survival. And you know, but I will remind you, you know, this trial had a hierarchical analysis: fairly PMR, PMMR, sorry, and then all comers. And then you can see here, the trial mets is primary endpoint. The combination of pembrolizumab lembatinum was superior to chemotherapy in the PMMR population and in all-comer population in terms of PFS with a hazard ratio 0.62 for the PMMR population and a hazard ratio 0.56 in the all cancer population. This is the updated data that presented by Becky Macker in ESMO last year with a follow-up the more than six 16 months. And then the overall survival. The overall survival was also superior in the combination of the pembrolizumab plus lenvatinib in the PMMR population and in the all camar population. When you look at the hazard ratio for the PMMR, 0.70. And when you look at the all camar population, hazard ratio, 0.65. In addition, you know, look at the kaplan Meyer curve. The patient started to get benefit from the combination, from the pembrolizumab, very early in the patient journey therapy. This is something very important. So, here, you know, we have summarized the overall response rate. As you can see, for the lemba pembro the overall response rate was 30.4, sorry, and for the all camera, 33.8. And when you look at the overall response rate for the chemotherapy, as expected, 50%. So, Then I guess that you're asking yourself, okay, what about DMMR population for this combination. This is something that you need to keep in mind in order to interpret the results properly. This is an exploratory analysis. So, in this exploratory analysis for the DMMR population, pembrolizumab was superior to chemotherapy in terms of PFS and OS. And when we look at the overall response rate and acknowledging the limitation of the cross-trial comparison, the overall response rate was 40%. That is quite a large. With the activity that we have already seen with uh, dostarlimab and pembrolizumab monotherapy, the,
0: the chance that that you I, I can't say cured. I'm not. I didn't think in my lifetime I would see people with recurrent cancer cured in treatment. But 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 you look at the duration response, two thirds for four years, three years. I mean, we have a little bit more mature data on 158 than we do Garnett, but. If you get a response, there's a really good chance that response is going to last unbelievably and even stable disease. And then we look at the LEN-PAM data, 775, we got about 32%, again, recurrent, but now proficient, proficient patients, just tonic level set, very consistent across. So let's go into the patient case, because I think this will go with the questions that we're getting here. So patient case, just in case you didn't know this was a patient case. Uh, 65-year-old, uh, originally presented. Uh, she, she's active. She's retired. She was a teacher. Uh, she undergoes a, a minimally invasive uh, t- typical surgery. We do sentinel lymph nodes, and uh, she ends up having a grade two. I like grade two rather than grade one, and uh, she has metastatic nodes, pelvic nodes. She's found to be proficient. She's found to be proficient. She gets six cycles of carboplatin paclitaxel. Doesn't get uh, radiation. Um, we can debate that, but let's talk more about our therapy. So four months after completing her therapy, she presents with, unfortunately, bad disease uh, because she was having symptoms. They confirm it, that she has pretty significant liver disease. Now, so she's proficient. She's gotten previous carboplatin paclitaxel. If I saw it, said taxel, I apologize, Pla- paclitaxel. So what are you going to do here?
1: Honestly, you know, I don't have any doubt that I will offer this patient to receive therapy with pembrolizumab plus lenvatinib. I think, you know, the combination really beat the chemotherapy with either doxorubicin or wilkipaclitaxel, and I think it will be an ideal option for these patients.
0: So, in, in my mind, she's four months, okay, if she's 12 months, would you go back to
1: chemo on this no, patient? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, it's something that we discuss a lot. I mean, because sometimes, you know, we try to come. to to establish comparison between ovarian cancer and endometrial cancer regarding the platinum-free interval. And honestly, I would like to say it doesn't apply in endometrial cancer. This patient has relapsed four months later after platinum therapy. I have no doubt that I will not treat this patient with platinum therapy once again. And for sure, you know, weekly paclitaxel, doxorubicin, 15% of overall response rate, short duration of response. Let's go to try Pembrolemba.
0: And, and and this this patient is left with no disease and still recur within four months. So clearly, chemotherapy, you know, even twelve months. I mean, if, if she presents three years later, we could probably debate it, right?
1: Absolutely. Bob, now
0: I'm getting I'm getting a lot of questions here. I'm going these are my friends, so I'm gonna call them their, by their first name. I apologize, but Bob, now we're, we're getting a ton of questions here. Lenpem's too toxic, you know? Well. Well, what do you think? I mean, 35% response right? living for years, but I don't want to deal with the toxicity because it cuts into my quality of life.
2: Well, I think, you know, we really, this is a very effective regimen, and we need to learn how to give this and manage the toxicities, which, you know, can be managed with dose holds, dose reductions, and successful mitigation strategies. Absolutely. agree.
0: And, and I was a little tongue cheek because I said mine purposely, not me as the patient, me as the practitioner. We have to learn how to give this. We're going to come back to that, but let's get into some of the fun questions now. Instead of carboplatin-paclitaxel, I'm going to start with Anna. she gets carboplatin-paclitaxel plus IO.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. This is a tricky question.
0: <laughs> and because of that, she would have continued, and she's progressing on IO. Wow! I mean, ah, that gets <laughs> fun. All right, that gets fun because we're gonna see some data. Let me we're tell be you something. I mean, we,
1: right? we don't have the crystal ball, but we have preliminary data from two important studies. One of them is the trial led by the group bamit Amit OSA that was published uh, one year ago with cabozantinib, and in, in this trial they treated the patient with cabozantinib and nivolumab, and then they treated patients just with nivolumab. And when the patient progressed under nivolumab, they added cabozantinib, and this patient were able to respond once again to IO. Preliminary data, a small sample size—sorry, size, but proof of concept. And then we have the Leo trial, the Leo trial that we you know that we, we developed with the collaboration of GOG and ENGOT, lucitanib and nivolumab. And then in this trial. Once again, a small sample size, but we treated patients with the combination who have progress under IO monotherapy, and then we show once again responses. It's something that we need to investigate in a formal, well designed clinical trial, but there's preliminary data that suggests that, you know, adding an antiangiogenic therapy for patients who have progress under IO, they may respond once again.
0: So so, this so is the some data preliminary data, clearly, clearly we, may, we need more data. And we're going to talk about some of the trials that are in here at the end. Uh, Bob and I saw you had something to say.
2: No, no, I was going to agree 100% with Anna, and I actually treated patients on both those trials and seen responses in prior IO-treated patients with the addition of a TKI
0: yeah, I, I, I've done the same. I have to admit. Um, again, with very limited data, I, but these are the these are the real questions we're going to have to face in a, a potentially a very short time. We think we're going. I'm curious to see.
2: But I would, what I would really recommend in this subgroup is a clinical trial.
0: Bob, now you, you your passion for making sure the patient is a shared decision. Well, any advice? We we have this slide up with regards to. These conversations, which are really data free zones or maybe data free zones moving forward. There is, you know, if you recur and you haven't had prior IO, endometrial cancer, some, are, some IO. For deficient, it's, it's gonna be single agent, proficient, it's gonna be a combination, right? We have to learn how to take care of the toxicities. But, I mean, how do you, how do you approach the patient with this, you know, as we go through this moving forward?
2: Yeah, no, I think um, this idea of shared decision-making is really important because it engages the patient in their treatment. And that really, you know, helps um, patients, one, you know, be motivated to stay on their drug and, you know, follow up. Have confidence that their provider is including them in the decision making, um, and so you know, while patients need guidance, I think they also want um, some ability to have control over you know how they're treated, and so I think you know this this idea of shared decision making is key, um, but I think the onus is also on us to really educate these patients before they start immunotherapy, and know you know what symptoms to look out for and to report them early. Early because we know that, you know, immune-related AEs, you know, can be fatal if um, they are not identified early and treated early.
0: Perfect segue. Education. So she, this patient, starts in LEN-PEM, pretty straightforward answer in, in our mind of this case, right? So you're going to educate her. But, but now she's she, pretty early on. She's about a month into therapy, so she just got her second uh, cycle, okay, of, in this case, of PEMBRO. She's done she's diarrhea. I'm not going to tell you. I mean, I, let's assume it's, it's in that grade one to two range, okay? We're not admitting in the hospital. We're not getting called. So h- how do you approach this patient? Combination therapy, both drugs have, have risk of diarrhea. Bob, why don't we start with you? And, and I want to talk to you about kind of, you know, then going to some of the timing of, 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 of some of these IOs.
2: Yeah, so, um, you know, these overlapping toxicities are are difficult, right? So diarrhea is one of them, thyroid disorders. Um, But it is important to kind of at least try to sort that out. Um, Usually, if you know, when these occur earlier on, especially with, um, diarrhea, you know, I ask, I, I think in my mind, is it mucousy and bloody? And that would be more of like a immune related colitis picture as opposed to watery. Um, and then holding the drug, if you can hold the, um, TKI and, and the diarrhea improves, um, you know, that's another indication. Um, the short life of the TKIs are short, right? So, um, that should, um, subside sooner, um, and then, you know, thinking about, you know, um, restarting them at a lower dose, um, using your anti-diarrheals, BRAT diet in that scenario. Um, but if, you know, if, if that's not what you think it is, then you really need to think the, you know, that it's more related to um, the IO and treat them very differently.
0: And, and the levatinib will start a little earlier, right? The colitis will start Correct. a little bit earlier. So holding, if, they're, if they're in between cycles, hold holding levatinib, see if it gets better. It doesn't get better than taking your next steps. You know, I think if they present and you, they haven't called in, you know, we talked about educating them, but we can educate a lot. Some patients are just not going to call in, and they're sitting there, and you have to make a decision. I was doing this with uh, Dr. Walker from Georgetown. He's a, he's a GI medical oncologist, and we were having a conversation. I go, well, I'd probably hold levatinate, but give the pen. He's like, why? The, you know, the, the drug, it sticks around for a while. Just hold both and get figured out if you're worried about where you are, because the Pembro will stick around longer. So hold both drugs, figure out, but maybe wait to start your intervention, uh, steroids or other, until you see what they do in the levatinib. So speaking of timing, I mean, Anna, we've done, we've treated a lot of patients on IO, right? I mean, when do you start to worry about IO associated toxicities? forever? Do you stop? I mean, what, what, what's your kind of timing?
1: I mean, this is very important. So, I mean, patient must be educated on IO toxicity. IO toxicity may appear at any time, not only during the patient is receiving therapy, but even after the patient has stopped receiving therapy. I mean, we have seen late toxicity after two years under IO. So, firstly, education. And another thing that you need to keep in mind, neglecting, identify IO adverse events has a really, really worse impact on the patient's outcome. So... Doctor must be educated and patient must be educated on IO toxicity, so there's some kind of toxicity that usually appear very early in the patient's journey as a skin toxicity, the most frequent one, followed by colitis and diarrhea and liver toxicity. I mean colitis and diarrhea usually appear between the week four and week six, but later on we have another and frequent toxicity, but we should also keep in mind, that is pneumonitis and nephritis. And this is a late toxicity. Pneumonitis is more frequent in patient with lung cancer, but we also have cases in patient with endometrial cancer. So every single time that the patient complain or appear in your office with any kind of symptoms, firstly, you know, rule out that the patient don't have a progression disease, I think the patient have a stable disease, or for sure is in response, in partial complete response, then try to rule out a side effect from IO. Yeah.
0: So single agent IO, single agent, very rare to have in the first cycle. I, I've seen it. Very rare. So if you're having a combination, but if it's combination, CTLA-4+, you see it much more frequently, still rare, but much more frequently than single agent. So combination, you will see in the cycle one uh, more commonly, but it's really a cycle two uh, phenomena. I educate fairly regularly to my patient because what's happened is they're cruising along for a year and they stop worrying about it. And I just had a really bad liver tox. At her second, at the end of her two years of therapy, literally the last cycle, and uh, so continuing education is important. And you know there are a ton of resources now. When I first started giving I.O. therapy, I had the ASCO guidelines opened all the time on my laptop. I literally had that as my reference constantly in clinic. The NCCN's updates most recently are actually very good. Started out a little bit rough, but actually are very very good. And then, Bobna, you you are the senior author on the SGO guidelines. So so we have multiple references. Having them available, educating our staff, so important. And you know what? I can't believe I'm treating thyroid disease. But you know what? (laughs) It's not that hard. And counting on the PCP to do it, I mean, come on. It's like, don't count on the primary care to treat their hypertension related to Levatinib. They will stroke out, okay? Do not do that. Have your plan and get comfortable with it. Uh, And I'm speaking to the GY oncologist in the room. Our medical oncology colleagues are just rolling their eyes right now. So we talked about hold the TKI. We talked about the overlap and how challenging it is. It all sounds like we all do the same thing. Uh, I most recently just, you know, again, just said, gosh, just hold both and figure it out, right? Like, I'm so worried about, oh, I'm holding it. It's sticking around. It's still going to help the patient. All right. So, what are we doing from you? You really talked about this, right? Now, Anna, where are we on? How do you educate your care extenders? How do you educate the nurses, the advanced practitioners? I mean, that they're getting all
1: the phone calls. Absolutely. I mean, they resp- I mean, they are the first content from our patients. So, I think it's very, very important. You know. At least once per month, I mean, you have a meeting with all your clinical nurses, with all your residents, and you're the fellow, and then review once again all the potential side effects from the combination of IO plus lembatiny uh, uh, of IO monotherapy, and then review the update in the clinical guideline. Now we have an update from the ESMO IO side effect. And then, you know, they need to keep in mind that one patient receiving IO. They may suffer from any kind of adverse event. Although you think that is infrequent, they may suffer from cardiac adverse event, neurological adverse event, every kind of sign. So you need to be alert every single time that the patient calls you or come to emergency room. And I repeat once again, neglecting to identify these adverse events will jeopardize your patient's outcome.
0: Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Ruby, G-Y-A-T. We're seeing them on Monday. We can't wait. We have press releases. It's gonna be good. But there's some other trials that are gonna make us think with regards to that. We know that, you know, and there's some differences between these trials. This is only part one of Ruby, but looking at really carboplatin, paclitaxel, plus minus Distarlamab for three years, for three years. Remember that Distarlamab after the first uh, about six cycles is going to then be uh, every six weeks. So when when we look at this here, uh, there's some slight differences in the design of these trials. But most importantly, most importantly, Ruby's design was a hierarchical to look at at the deficient patients and then the intent to treat. While GYN-18 was actually two parallel cohorts, essentially two trials in one, looking at the proficient patients and the deficient patients. But now with Pembrol rather than Dostalimab, carboplatin, pathotaxel. And we're going to really have to look at and identify once we see those results. We know they're positive based on the press releases. Because we have three ongoing trials looking to replace chemotherapy. To replace chemotherapy with our IO therapy. Okay? They're up here. But... They may not have the right control arm. So now we're going to have to do cross trial comparison, which is not valid because we never do it. Okay. We also have the attend trial, which is a completed enrollment, also trying to answer this question. Um, but we've talked about IO plus chemotherapy, talked about IO plus antivascular. How about IO plus PARP? So Ruby part two is actually uh, plus PARP. Duo E is also with Derva, but plus PARP. And you see in a three-arm trial, this is also completed enrollment, right? So now we didn't talk about, I'm gonna save it for you, Bhavna, trastuzumab. You're checking her too. New. you told us that was not controlled for here or in these trials. So, tell me, what, what, what do you think here with regards to uh, wh- where we are in the treatment? What happens if our trials are positive for all comers to the point where we're getting IO therapy to everybody? But now we have a positive one of three trials that are positive for chemo, for IO therapy to replace chemo? There are no answers to these questions. But we're gonna have some fun in the last ten minutes. Because I have, as I said, two smartest people I know to tell me what to do. Anna, start us off.
1: So I mean, we don't have the full data yet. I mean we have the press release. Oh no, come on, come on, come on, come on, come <laughs> on. No, I can't All right. they're let, me finish, I told let you. me finish, let they're me finish, let me finish. I know, I know the data. Enough, I know, I want to say that yeah, yeah. I mean there's no doubt that we will incorporate IO in our first line patient with advanced or recovering endometrial cancer. I mean Without exception, you know, excluding those patients who have any kind of contraindication due to underlying comorbidity, our patient will receive IO plus paclitaxel carboplatin. The point is that we need to start to make the difference between those patients who relapse under IO therapy. And those patients who relapse or progress after they have finished the IO therapy per protocol, it will not be the same kind of patient. And then we need to start working on those patients and identify the mechanism of resistance because it will not be the same. Probably those patients who have progressed after finishing the protocol, I mean, two, three years of the starlimab, they progress one year later, six months year later. Why we cannot in this patient with IO? I mean, we will need to study. But what happened with those patients who progress after three months under IO therapy, or even worse, those patients who progress receiving chemo plus IO? I mean, we have different population, and we need to start to work on these patients to identify all this granularity.
0: So that's a great point. Somewhat we dealt with and ovarian cancer, right? The ex- PARP exposed before versus the PARP resistant. Progressing on therapy versus a patient who had prior therapy. Bob and I want to hear your thoughts on that. Then I want to hear your thoughts about what are you going to do with a HER2-positive, MMR-proficient patient <laughs> who is HER2-new-positive. She's proficient. Once we see the data, I mean, I... I are we going to be able to, to uh, are you going to use trastuzanab in that patient or the chemotherapy? But first I want to hear your thoughts with what Anna just said.
2: That's a lot. That is, <laughs> that is a lot. <laughs> Jesus, that's a first terrible moderating myself, job. I'm sorry about that. to <laughs> answer everything. Um, <laughs> I'm going to answer what I want. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, so, and just, um, just say what you want. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, I think um, I, I think one point that I do want to make is that I think this chemotherapy versus IO is still an important question, even though that the standard arm in that will as you said, you know, be not as relevant, right, with the new data coming out on Monday. And the reason I say that is, you know, we have data in colorectal cancer where, um, you know, IO um, is effective. We've seen the recent um, data presented at ASCO and published in the New England Journal with Dostarlamab where they had, you know, 100% response rate in the neoadjuvant setting, right? So, So I think we can't just, I know it's small, but I just don't think we can throw away this idea that IO alone may not be beneficial in the um, DMMR or the biomarker positive population. Um, and then, getting to your HER2 question... Uh, so so let, but okay. let, let, let's
0: stop there for a second. I'm sorry for throwing so many questions. That, that was a terrible job of moderating. So, so, we still have the answer, particularly, and, you know, it was, it was 100%, it was 11 patients, right? But it's a New England Journal of Medicine, 11. It's pretty impressive because it was CRs. CR, 100%. So, so the thought that we will be able to replace chemotherapy, which I think all of us want to do for our patients, right, is still such an important question. We're going to have trouble enrolling those trials with this new data, but go, please.
2: Yeah, and you know, and you and I have talked about this. The other point I think is really important is, you know, are the you know dMMR patients that are not um, you know epigenetically silenced like with MLH1 methylation different, and is that the cohort of patients that may even benefit more? We don't know these answers to these questions, and, and need to really look at that.
0: Particularly from, yeah, I mean, it, looking at those patients are most apt to respond at the deepest, and as you said, CR in those 11 patients. So I really am struggling with this, which is the Trastuzumab data, yes, is small, phase two. Uh, Amanda Nichols Fader, wonderful job. Uh, we, many of us collaborated with her and in, in, in the Yale colleagues on this, uh, Dr. Santin. So I'm really struggling with my advanced stage Cirrus. And I have to admit, I'm, I'm checking her and carcinoma sarcoma now if they have a serious component. Uh, what am I going to do with those patients? Obviously, to your point, it depends what the data looks like, right? But, I mean, again, I'm thinking the proficient population is not going to blow me away, but I'm curious to see. So how, are you, are you going to just switch them all to I.O.? Are you going to wait? Well, what are you going to do?
2: Well, I think, you know, our you know, our clinical practice has evolved based on 60 patients in a you know randomized phase two trial you know, that's compendium listed. So it's not, it's not FDA approved. And I think depending on the magnitude of benefit, you know, if IO gets approved in that cohort of patients and the magnitude of benefit is great enough, I will use IO. Yeah,
0: and I think really as we look at this, and it's really, you know, all of us are passionate about clinical trials, I hope you all are passionate You know, the reason we're making these huge strides is because of clinical trials. And setting your practices up, making sure the best option for a patient, and you heard this morning for platinum resistant ovarian cancer by Dr. Morton, which is they do better if they go on a clinical trial versus standard of care of never going on a clinical trial. In this case, the reason we're making these huge jumps where you may be curing patients with current cancers participating in clinical trial. Bob, we're down the last three minutes. Bottom right, increasing diversity. I know it's your passion. Can you give you a very short, and then once you do that, I want a final thought, and then Anna, a final thought, and then I'll wrap us up in the last three minutes.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so. You know, I think I alluded to it in my talk that, you know, we're seeing mortality, right, rising mortality in endometrial cancer, and much of that is related to the non-Hispanic black population. And so it is critical that those patients be enrolled on clinical trials because they are the patients that are most in need of new therapies. Um, And, you know, in that light, you know, I loved the opening plenary this morning that really highlighted, you know, this need to think about, you know, modernizing our clinical trials. Dr. Agajanian gave a beautiful presentation on that, on, you know, how we can have much less restrictive eligibility criteria. Um, and then, you know, the work that you presented with your fellow, Dave, also really, you know, really um, great in terms of um, increasing that, um, clinical trial participation and the need um, in the patients that need it the most. Um, My final thoughts are um, that we, um, that obviously the endometrial cancer treatment paradigm on Monday will change. Um, And it's a really exciting time to be able to bring these new therapies into the front line um, and it just goes to show you that the second line is wide open, and we need clinical trials, and we need to—we need everyone's, you know, engagement and participation, and, you know, um, really to put patients on these new trials that we're going to be developing in this space to answer these questions that we have.
1: Just one sentence, very short. Uh, I think we are in a, this is a new era for endometrial cancer patients. We are changing, thanks to the clinical research, the natural history of our endometrial cancer patients.
0: We are curing patients with these new therapies with advanced metastatic and recurrent disease. If you are not comfortable with immune therapy, call me.
1: <laughs> you, then, you see how then many then people are, are on the room. My,
0: the nurse practitioner I work with, because she really does the work on this, right?
1: You having can call a me can
0: it, in place. I say I. I should never say I. I should, <laughs> oof, yes. So having the team around you to support because they are challenging. Lots of people are afraid of the combination of Latin and Pembroke because of toxicity. You should be afraid of not having your patients live as long as they should. And yes, do I dose at 18 milligrams because it's easier dose reduce And I know that more than half the patients are going to be dose-reduced. Is it wrong to start at 14? No, I start at 18 because they have 10s and the 4s. It's very easy to drop down, okay? That was a question that came in the audience. That wasn't my conclusion. Okay, so... If they didn't get IO therapy in the first line setting, recurrent, some sort of IO regimen. If they got IO in the first line setting, we need more data to reintroduce. Would I ever do single agent IO after somebody had progressed on IO? No, but IO exposed, to your point, 100%. Combination, therapy, unique, cutting-edge treatments, and by drug conjugates, that's where we're going. Thank you for your attention. Hope you appreciated this. This activity is certified by PVI, Peer Review Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerviewcom forward slash YTW 860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca, ISI Incorporated, GSK, and Merkin Company Incorporated.